short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Freaking immigrants. It's hot. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Let's kill our way to freedom. It's the golden rule. Who has the gold? Who the guns makes the rules. Welcome back to the Cold War episode one hundred and thirty. Hey, motherfucker! Yeah. yeah, it is. Big one through that. Israel, part, I don't know, Something. six, yeah. I think. I want to go there. I think it's six. <clears throat> right. Uh, at the end of the last episode, Ray, I, yeah. I sort of hinted at the rise of Arab nationalism in the early 20th century, which is partly what I want to talk about in this episode. Yes, you did. Yes. Because there's a lot of things going on in oh, the Middle East yeah. in layers. the early 20th century. Layers. It's layers, baby. Right. Layers, Jerry. Layers. <laughs> what is this about? I'm completely changing the configuration of the apartment. You're not going to believe it when you see it. Whole new lifestyle. <laughs> what are you doing? Levels. <laughs> Levels. Yeah, I'm getting rid of all my furniture. All of it. And I'm going to build these different levels. You know, with steps. And it'll all be carpeted. With a lot of pillows. You know, like ancient Egypt. You drew up plans for this? No. No, it's all in my head. I don't see how you can get comfortable like that. Oh, I'll get comfortable. I love that shit. <laughs> oh, I'll get comfortable. <laughs> don't um, you worry. Yeah. yeah, lots of levels in the Middle East in the yeah. early 20th century. You know, I mentioned last time that uh, the, the Arab nationalist movement was led by a guy called Najib Azuri, who was a runaway Ottoman civil servant, Maronite uh-huh. Christian, Ooh. who studied in Paris and then later returned there to fight a propaganda war against the Ottoman Empire. He published a book in 1905 called The Awakening of the Arab Nation, in which he called for Arab separation from the Ottoman Empire. Now, the book had anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist overtones. Oh, shit. Possibly influenced by the author's experiences as a student in Paris during the Dreyfus Affair. Oh, Remember, we talked about yes. that early on um, yeah. when the, uh, a Jewish soldier, I think, was accused of something and there was riots. Well, I'm I'm glad of Azuri's trying to help you know create or jumpstart this this movement for independence for either for an independent Arab state or at the very least for better representation within the uh, within the uh, Ottoman Empire. That's all great, but in one of the the manifestos he writes, he ta- he's talking about an Arab state from the Euphrates to the Suez Canal. Now you and I both know there's no way in hell 
Britain is going to let that happen. But the point is, there are there are enough Arabs who are starting to be pissed off about being second-class citizens in their own country, in their own province, that's a part of the Ottoman Empire, that they're starting to actually write to each other. They're talking, they're planning. Maybe there's some secret societies. But the point is, they've had enough. They've got the Jewish problem as well, don't get me wrong. But they're really certainly pissed about not being treated as equals with the Turks. And, and they want to, I mean, yeah, with the Ottoman Empire, they want to do something about it. Mm. Yeah, in his book, Azuri wrote, two important phenomena of the same nature but opposed are emerging at this moment in Asiatic Turkey. They are the awakening of the Arab nation and the latent effort of the Jews to reconstitute on a very large scale the ancient kingdom of Israel. These Mm. movements are destined to fight each other continually until one of them wins. He nailed it. Fucking nailed it. He nailed it right there. He nailed it. Yeah. Uh, Now, what I point out again, he was a Christian Arab, not even a Muslim Arab. Um, Now, at a meeting in Basel in 1905, a Palestinian Jew, Itzhak Epstein delivered a lecture on what he called the Arab question. He said, among the difficult questions connected to the idea of the renaissance of our people on its soil, there is one which is equal to all others, the question of our relations with the Arabs. We have forgotten one small matter. There is, in our beloved land, an entire nation which has occupied it for hundreds of years and has never thought to leave it. We are making a great psychological error with regard to a great, assertive and jealous people. While we feel a deep love for the land of our forefathers, we forget that the nation who lives in it today has a sensitive heart and a loving soul. The Arab, like every man, is tied to his native land mm-hmm. with strong bonds. Nice. And that, I mean, they, it's basically the same argument the Jews are making. Yes, we haven't been here for 2,000 years, but we have a connection, a bond with this land, and we have we insist upon coming back. The Arabs are doing the same exact thing. Except they're still there. Right. Yeah. But they're, they're being yeah. Yeah, treated not as well as the, as the other citizens of the Ottoman Empire. But yeah. And it's, it's nice to see Jews and, and Palestinian Jews, in the case of Ixtac, Zach Epstein uh, uh, reflecting the reality of this with a sense of empathy right. towards the Arabs. Like, I'm sure there were Arabs that had empathy towards the Jews. I think we, we quoted a, a couple of episodes ago uh, one leading Arab uh, Muslim scholar around that time who basically said, listen, you know, we get it. The Jews should have their own land. We absolutely agree that you've been treated poorly and you should yeah. have your own land just don't take our <laughs> land there's lots of lands out there <laughs> with no no one on them go take one of those lands if it's not asking we, too much just don't take ours yeah 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 if if it would be okay yeah um so like it's 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 important to recognize that there were empathetic people on both sides of this uh but at the end of the day, I guess um, yeah. the, the people with the uh, agendas kind of won out. One Jew around this time said about Palestine, the bride is beautiful, but she is married to another man. <laughs> to which I would say, yeah, that's never stopped me. But, no. you know, it's 
so I, I get it. Right. No. <laughs> all's, all's fair in love and war, baby. Exactly. And, and I don't want to jump ahead, but I do want to emphasize something. A second ago, we were talking about the layers. So you've got the Jews coming in. You've got the Arabs trying to stand up to the Turks. And this is the beginning of the 20th century. By this time, the, the, the Jewish numbers are getting very impressive. And they've bought a lot of land and they've got a lot of influence. But at the same time, you have the Arabs who are standing up to the Turks. But at the same time, you have the Turks in their own way, who are upset. They're trying to save their own country, not just from the Jews and not just trying to maybe get along better with the Arabs, but they're also trying to change, improve, and modify and modernize their own country. Because the guy who's at the very top of this Ottoman Empire is Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who is a very conservative guy. He's uh, We'll get into it in a minute, but the point is he's like turned the clock back on the Ottoman Empire. So there's a lot of different groups not only fighting each other, but fighting their own personal wars. And it's just a very potentially explosive region for a lot of different reasons. Now, some Zionists Mm -hmm. were arguing around about the early 20th century. And as you pointed out, I think in the last episode, that they should learn Arabic and try to assimilate. Not all of them wanted to kick the the Arabs out and make it a... Jewish state just for Jews. You know, they were saying, look, the Arabs who live in Palestine are the descendants of the Canaanite and Judean rural populations, mm-hmm. as are we. They're just the people that became Muslims after the Muslim conquest, but we're all close in blood and spirit, as I pointed out right. with the DNA studies done earlier. They're all descendants of the same people from right. this part of the land. And, and in fact... Their descendants 2,000 years ago were all Jews. Mm. Mm-hmm. The descendants of your Muslim population in Palestine were Jews as well. Right. Pre-Muhammad. There might have been Good some point. Christians. Yeah. Some Christian Arabs in there. But the majority, I'm guessing, of Palestinian Arabs in you know the the first few centuries of the first millennium would have been Jews right. and the the people that were living in Palestine the arab muslims in palestine in the early 20th century were descendants of those people mm. um now i know that you know there lots of different migrations and bedouins had come in and that kind of stuff but you know, I, I, even going back that far, I, I'm sure that the Bedouin Arabs, uh, dece- uh, uh, no, the opposite of descendants, uh, ancestors, mm-hmm. were were quite possibly Jews, going back far enough. Right. Now, other Zionists disagreed, though. There was a guy called Joseph Klausner, who was actually a, jo- a Jewish historian who wrote a couple of very influential books about Jesus, Sure, and was a was a candidate for president in the first Israeli presidential election in 1949, and was the great uncle uncle of the famous and recently deceased Israeli author Amos Oz. You ever read any of Amos Oz's books? I have not. What did he? Write? I started a couple. Started uh-huh. a couple um, in the last year. Didn't didn't get too far into them, but I gave them a crack, um, and I intend to I intend to read them at some stage. Uh, Anyway, Joseph Klausner regarded the Arabs and their culture as inferior. He regarded oh. them as 
savages. Here we go. For him, the goal was clear. He wrote, Our whole hope is that in the fullness of time, we will be the masters of the country. And he wasn't even an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> just arrogant. Well, just... Uh, look, uh, you know, I, I, I get it. These people uh, had been oppressed by pretty much everyone for mm-hmm. thousands of years. They were determined to have their own land and to be masters of their own land and their own destiny. I, I totally get that. I get that uh, too, but... To assume that you're superior to the locals who were there, mm. that's just taking it a step further. Then maybe it has, but but maybe that helps you get your get uh, accomplish your goals if you think of them as either pushovers or weaker than you. I don't know. And, but again, I want to point out that in the late uh, 19th century, in the early 20th century, this was not uh, a, a unique point of view. I mean, in your country, mm-hmm. when did you get rid of? When was the Emancipation Proclamation? What year? Uh, the Gettysburg Address? No, the Emancipation Proclamation. I'm, I'm completely drawing a blank right now. I completely am. When was the Civil War? You want to take a 1861 guess? 1861 to 65. So it was just after six, that. Six, right, okay. So, you know, you, you officially only ended slavery in the late 19th century, uh, <laughs> still treating the African-Americans mostly fairly shabbily yeah. around the country. For decades. Um, yeah, and not to mention the Native Americans... Uh, the the British were still oh. occupying I- India yeah. and treating the Indians as and the Mexicans, savages, the Latinos. Uh, Come on, yeah. yeah. So this 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 was a very common ah, European slash uh, uh, white colonialist view right. of the 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 less civilized nations in the view of the white people. It wasn't point. only the Russian Jews who thought this way about the Arabs, this was the, the standard view of white people, European-descended people around the world towards, right. you know, the de- people of developing nations, let's say. So what you're saying is we can talk about the Jews settling Palestine, but at the same time, let's not forget that they're European and white and they have those attitudes and thoughts as well. Yeah, even though... They'd been kicked around. Did matter by other Europeans. Still white yeah. for thousands. Of years. Yeah, still white. Listen, white is right. We may baby. be the we, we may be the <laughs> lowest people on the rung of white people, and we may have some Middle Eastern DNA, but, but we're still it doesn't show. We're still white people, yeah. right? We're yeah. still better than the people that aren't white. Right now. God. Yeah, but it was it was that was the view of it's fuck it it's still the view of a lot of white people today, Ray. Let's be hell honest. yeah, I'm related uh, to him. <laughs> and you're also one fourth Cherokee, so right. you get to see right all sides of the argument. Well, equal, see, if I may, real quick, the people that are most racist in my family are also part Cherokee, but they don't <laughs> look it; they look cracker yeah. white, and that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, cracker. <laughs> cracker white. Don't get any whiter than a cracker, my friend. Where does that term come from? 
cracker white? Was this because crackers were white? I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Do you understand do, the etymology of that? I don't know that. But there's a, fa- there's a scene that I absolutely love in um, Kevin Smith's movie when uh, Chris, Chris Rock is in it and he's a director and a white guy comes up behind him and he goes, crack, crack, cracker? And he turns around and there's a white guy standing there. I just love that shit. He, he smells the cracker coming. He smells his whiteness. Anyway... A 1783 pejorative use of crackers specifies men who were descended from convicts that were transported from Great Britain to Virginia at different times and inherit so much profligacy from their ancestors that they are the most abandoned set of men on earth. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin, in his memoirs, 1790, referred to a race of runagates and crackers equally wild and savage as the Indians... Who inhabit the deserted woods and mountains. Oh, are we white trash? Could, Go ahead. The term could also have derived from the Middle English, crake, crake, crack, crack, <laughs> which originally meant the sound of a cracking whip, but came to refer to loud conversation and bragging talk. In Elizabethan oh. times, this could refer to entertaining conversation. One may be said to crack a joke, and a cracker could be used to describe loud braggarts. And podcasters. This term <laughs> and the Gaelic spelling crake are still in use in Ireland, Scotland, and Northern England. I nice. it's the crake. <laughs> um, so there you go. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with the food of crackers. No, no, no. Um, just, it I, has been suggested that the white slave foremen in the antebellum south were called crackers owing to their practice of cracking the whip to uh, drive and punish slaves. Uh, huh. So there you go. That, Don't know. that term has got more history than I... Then I knew that that's incredible. I do have to tell you that when I went to Scotland, a lot of locals that I talked to as, as far as being loud, most of them would say, you know, you know, we all look alike and stuff like that. But they can generally hear Americans first and then turn around and see them because Americans are quite loud. And I thought that was hilarious. And it's basically true. Uh, but, yeah, we're all a bunch of crackers in this country bragging and talking loudly about it. Americans and Australians, when, whenever you whenever yeah. you travel, yeah. they stand out like a sore thumb because they're always talking loudly. Okay? The Aussies are just as bad, if not worse, than the Americans. And I would like to apologize for all the crackers, the American crackers. My experience, though, when I'm traveling in Europe and Asia is that Americans are talking loudly and usually complaining Right. About yes. the lack of service or the quality of the food. Air conditioner, they, you know, ice. They, yeah, yeah. They they don't like this or they don't like that or whatever. <laughs> the Aussies, when they're speaking loudly, are normally just drunk and uh, <laughs> ha- having a laugh and probably trying to probably trying to get more beer and uh, yeah. bang the local women. But they're just they're equally as loud and embarrassing. <laughs> We're sorry. Anywho. Um, Anywho. Things started to heat up in 1908, the year of the Young Turk Revolution. Explain Mm. to people the Young Turk Revolution, Ray. Well, first of all, the Young Turks were a coalition of various reform groups um, that led the revolutionary movement against, the again, the uh, Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Um, now, just to go back for a, se- a step for a moment, back in 1889, a group of students at the Imperial Medical Academy in Istanbul at the time, 
initiated an, a conspiracy against Abdul Hamid, and that spreads to other colleges. But the plot is uncovered. A lot of these people are chased down by the authorities, and so a lot of them have to flee abroad to Paris, like you were saying earlier about the the one young gentleman. But that that doesn't mean they give up. They're writing letters to each other. They're learning from other co- uh, countries. They're trying to get support in Paris and other places, and they're still trying to keep this this thing actually moving forward. So um, so even though it starts a little bit earlier than that, but they do try to make something happen. Um, in the opening years of the 20th century. Mm. And and they do. I mean, they, they basically help weaken the yes. Ottoman Empire, which helps a lot for, in World War I. They uh, wanted to restore the constitution and a, and a multi-party electoral system. Yeah. And it, it played a large role in the end of the Ottoman Empire, which also helped spur on Arab nationalism. Now, it's around this time that the violence between the Jews and the Arabs started to escalate beyond Mm -hmm. what, until that point, had mostly been localised violence. Over over borders and land and stuff. Property rights, yeah, that kind of stuff. exactly. And it started to take on a nationalist feel because, again, both parties, both the Arabs in Palestine and the Jews who were going to Palestine, you know, felt like they had a, a right to the country, not just mm-hmm. to this farm or that farm, but to... the whole to damn place. The yeah. whole damn thing. An <laughs> Arab country for Arab people. Right. And the Jews started to arm themselves to an even greater extent than they had been before. One Zionist at the time wrote, land is the most necessary thing for establishing roots in Palestine. Since there are hardly any more arable, unsettled lands, we are bound in each case to remove the peasants who cultivated the land. So they're still going in with this agenda of removing in any way necessary the Mm -hmm. local inhabitants so they can take it over. Yeah. In March of 1911, 150 Palestinian notables cabled the Turkish parliament and protested against continuing land sales to Jews. Wow. Now, this is where the governor of Jerusalem at the time, Ajmi Bey, responded, We are not xenophobes. We welcome all strangers. We are not anti-Semites. We value the economic superiority of the Jews. But no nation, no government could open its arms to groups aiming to take Palestine from us. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a fairly reasonable and understandable stance uh, yeah. for them to take. Again, that's like Latinos sneaking into this country, buying up land, and then trying to make it legit by using power and influence, trying to buy off local officials. I mean, we would be pissed. The locals have every right to be pissed, but it doesn't play that way generally in history. If If I could give the Young Turks a little bit of context for a moment. So... Putting the Arabs aside and their their the rise of Arab nationalism, trying to get better representation or trying to leave the Ottoman Empire, what's bothering a lot of these Turks, these young, educated, um, you know, relatively liberal young men, is that back in 1876 there was a constitution that had all those things that you were talking about, multi-party politics, electoral law, that kind of stuff. But the Sultan lets it run for about two years. I guess he doesn't like it, and so he crushes it. So they have a taste of 
I, I don't know if you want to call it democracy, but they had a taste of a more modern type of government. They seem to like it. The sultan takes it away. And from that moment on, there's whispers and murmurs and secret organizations and secret meetings about getting to the point, forcing this sultan or whoever's in charge at the time to bring some of that back because they they had it and it's been taken away from them. And that's what they're focused on now. And they're very unhappy with the very conservative elements uh, running the country. See, here's the other part of it, because you have these you have these young men who are not only concerned about their country, but they're nationalists as well. They have pride in their country. In 1908, Edward VIII of England and Nicholas II of Russia are going to meet, and this is June of 1908. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to put their differences aside. They don't have a lot of differences. It's not like they've been, you know, attacking each other. But what the the young Turks are worried about is that if these two get together and talk, they might try to have a conversation about how to take more Ottoman uh, Ottoman Empire territory because for the last 200 years, you know, some countries, some territories have been slipping away. Some are actually so autonomous that they're actually independent in everything but name. And so there's a lot of concern. So some of the army units in the Balkans for the Ottoman Empire, uh, they mutiny against the Sultan. And he's actually the 34th Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. But basically, the Third Army Corps in Macedonia, they rise up. They're not happy with his continued oppression. Uh, this is in, uh, at the time, Salonika, now Thessalonica. And they merge with a political party that's been fighting for the same thing called the Committee of Union and Progress. The uprisings increase, the revolts increase. But this is not just something led by intellectuals. This is not something that's just led by military officers. The people themselves want change. They're the ones who don't have any rights or have any laws. And there's not like a court that you can go to to defend yourself because the sultan is ruling everything. So this has the backing of the populace in general. And with this kind of pressure on July 24th, Sultan Abdul Hamid II capitulates and he restores the 1876 constitution, which sounds great, but it's going to lead to direct problems for the Arabs because even though there's this revolution, even though this constitution has been brought back, when the parliament meets, it's mostly Turkish delegates. There's not enough Arabs. There's a few uh, Christians and there's actually four Jews who attend. But the point is, the Arabs find themselves still underrepresented. They don't have jobs in the government and the court and the courts, and their language is not being respected. So again, it helps the Turks, but it doesn't help the Arabs, and that's what the British and the French are going to try to take advantage of when World War One rolls around. Yeah, and I I just wanted to point out that one of the things driving the Young Turk Revolution was mm-hmm. this idea of what was called Ottomanism. Again, the um, Ottoman uh, citizens, like the Arabs, were thinking a lot about national identity. They were inspired right. by the French Revolution and they wanted to get rid of this monarchical yeah. empire where they didn't have a lot of rights. They really wanted to have a more of a, of a democratic society where the people had a lot more rights and a lot more power. So as, as I understand it, that's what were driving the, mm-hmm. the young Turks, and uh, it was it was very popular, had a lot of adherence at least for a while, and uh, it was too much for the Sultan at the time to fight against. There was a number of 
uh, uh, protests and riots, and eventually he caved in to a certain extent. Right. If I could just real quick give that a book in. So the Turks have their revolution. And of course, because of them, a lot of them are intellectuals or army officers. A lot of them get elected. They really don't know exactly what they're doing. They don't really get how government works. So it's not a, a perfect, smooth transition. The sultan, who is not given up, seizes this and he tries to, to take undo all the compromises that he made. So in April of 1909, he tries to cause friction between the various groups. He promises to restore the caliphate. He's going to restore Sharia law, that kind of stuff that for the legal system. But again, it's the um, some of the army officers who revolt in April of 1909. They rise up. The sultan can't stand up to them because none of the troops will defend him. And so he actually not only has to give back the constitution that he just you know gave and then took away, but he is deposed and his son, Mehmed V, becomes the sultan. So the country still has their sultan, but the, the country is obviously weakened politically. And um, the, the people are getting a lot more rights. And of course, this is right before the huge test to see if this country can survive. World War I comes up and everybody's got plans because no one is predicting the Ottoman Empire will survive the Great War. Well, and, and before World War One, mm-hmm. they have to get through the Balkan Wars, the First right. and Second Balkan Wars, yeah. which I think isn't very well uh, known, maybe, in the West. I, I don't think it gets yeah. talked about a lot as the yeah. predecessor, one of the causes of World War One, but in, in at a high level, basically yeah. the, the, the Balkan League, as it was known, which was basically the kingdoms of... Uh, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, and Montenegro, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, they rebelled against the Ottoman Empire, were able to relatively yes. quickly defeat the Ottoman Empires. They were basically breaking away from the Ottoman Empire. And it was a huge disaster for the Ottomans. They lost something like 80% of their territory in Europe. Jesus. 70, 70% of their European population. Uh, and it was a result of the weakening of the Ottoman Empire, where the, the Europeans went, hey, we can take that. Let's find right. any fucking excuse we can. <laughs> Oh, some nobody got killed by some nobody. So, <laughs> fucking let's Done. let's go, baby. Yeah. Let's that'll do. <laughs> Just looking for any excuse right. to oh, uh, start a war to basically divvy up the yeah. remain remaining bits of the Ottoman Empire. But so there was this war, nineteen twelve to nineteen thirteen, the first Balkan War, and then. After that, Bulgaria wasn't happy with the division of Macedonia. That led to the Second Balkan War, which ran uh, for a little while in 1913, I think. Um, And, yeah, it was a huge disaster for the Ottomans and and massively weakened them and paved the way for World War I. Right. If I could, right before we jump to World War One, you were talking about, you started off this entire section talking about Najib Azari. He was one of three people that really helped with national, with Arab nationalism. Another one of his colleagues was Ab Rahman al-Kawakibi, who was born in Aleppo. He's an intellectual. He writes books. And I, I just wanted to, to point this out because, again, some of this stuff 
is still with us today. And if we could just learn from our past, we'd be a lot better off. But anyway, so he's writing books and he and he's complaining about the weakness of the Islamic wor- world, the very thing that we're talking about now that's about to be tested when World War One comes along. And he's writing, he's like, why is the Ottoman Empire, why is this region of the country weak? And he, and he, and he, listens, he lists some reasons. He says there's religious infighting, there's intolerance, there's a ban on freedom of speech, there's inequality, there's the uncritical acceptance of the written word, there's hostility towards science, and there's the neglect of our women's education. So when you have all those things, you are going to have a weak society, you're going to have a weak culture, you're going to have a lot of tensions that either can be taken advantage of, or it might just implode on its own, like it, like it's uh, happening so far, like it's happened with the Balkan, and it's going to happen with World War One. And so you just you just want to take something that's that simple and compare it to today where we still have, you know, hostility towards science. We still don't, you know, take the education of women or certain groups of our society as seriously as we could. Freedom of speech gets a lot of shit. There's a lot of religious infighting. In some ways, we haven't, we think we've come so far from even, say, 1908, but in some ways we haven't. And again, they were complaining about the same thing. And here's another example of if you don't treat everybody fair, at least try to do a better job and accept science and go with facts and don't be afraid of them, your country, your your society, your culture will suffer for it. Who, when you say we don't today, who are you talking about? I, I mean United Americans. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I you should have been more specific. You don't, you don't like educating your women over there? Well, there's some of that, but there's still stereotypes. There's still, um, you know, someone was joking with my daughters the other day about you going to go to college to find a husband, right? And the words fuck you, the words fuck you just (laughs) flew out of my mouth. I'm like, what is this, the 1950s? I mean, they were joking, but the point is that thought Uh, was in their head. But, but again, but science, you know, come on. Anyway, I just thought I just found that the parallels. Your Catholic Catholic priest, brother in law. (laughs) No, no, it wasn't. He's having enough issues as it is, which we'll go into later off air. Ooh, yeah. loud, juicy. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> anyway. Okay, so I want to get into World War One. Yeah. So then World War One happened and everyone saw their chance to detach Palestine from the Ottoman Empire. The Palestinian Arabs wanted yeah. self-determination. The Zionists wanted it for themselves. And then you have the British, Lord George Curzon, who was at the time the British Foreign Secretary, was worried that Turkey, quote, infected with the virus of German militarism, end quote, could not be allowed after the war to resume its control of Palestine, which is the military gate to Egypt and the Suez Canal, the nerve centre of the British Empire. Right. And I think, again, that's something that is an important point that we need to understand. Uh, So the the Suez Canal, something Mm -hmm. that the British had uh, bought with the help of the Rothschilds. If you if if you are unfamiliar with the Suez Canal, uh, open up your Google Maps, have a look at the Suez Canal, and then uh, zoom out a little bit, and it'll become strikingly uh, obvious to you why it was important. Basically, <laughs> a canal that ran from 
the Mediterranean Sea, the, the corner of you know the north north uh, west corner, no northeast corner of Egypt, ran from the Mediterranean Sea uh, through a, a, a small piece of land uh, down into the Red Sea, by which wow. you can quite quickly get into the Indian Ocean. And so, right. if you're uh, Great Britain at the time, and you, you're trying to trade with your empire in India which is just on the other side of the Red Sea, rather than having to put your sh- have your ships go all the way around Africa to get to India, yeah. you can just cut through, Zoom take along. a shortcut yeah. through Egypt, right. down through the Red Sea and uh, get there. So protecting the Suez Canal was vitally important to British economic interests. And on one side of it, it's Egypt. And on the other side of it was Palestine, uh, uh, and, yeah. and or, I mean, uh, and or, you know, uh, the Arabian Peninsula. Right. And uh, so they wanted to get their hands. Uh, they, wa- they wanted at least a friendly power in, uh, you know, that part of Arabia, that part of Palestine that would protect the eastern approach to the Suez Canal uh, after the war. Yeah. So... This is where the British interests lie at the time. Oh, they're going to package it up with Christian Zionism and this and that. But of course, as always, a large component of their their, their reasons for supporting, in this case, Zionism, is protecting their own economic interests, uh, the Suez Canal. So the Brits were urging the Arabs to revolt against the Ottomans Yes. Promising them self-determination after the war with a view that they would kind of end up as a British protectorate right. at the very least. Yeah. But see, here's, here's what makes the whole thing fascinating for me. So before World War I breaks out, German influence of the Ottoman Empire is increasing. The Germans are helping train and equip and, and their, their army and that kind of stuff. So they're working with them. So Germany has a lot of influence in there. So World War I breaks out. And the British like go, okay, so no matter what happens, by the time this war is over with, the Ottoman Empire, whatever's left of it, whatever, or Germany directly, cannot be controlling the area around the Suez Canal. Because like you said, we need that to be able to keep in touch with India, the jewel of the British Empire. I get all that. But so you've got a lot of British people like Lord Curzon who's going, the area around the canal we need to really watch that. We need to somehow directly or, or indirectly make sure that's ours by the time or either by the time the war is over with or when the war is ov- over with. However, uh, working against him, Lord Horatio Kitchener, the war, war minister, says, I'm not so much worried about that. I'm worried about Russian expansion further north. You want a southern buffer zone? You want a southern section, a, a sphere of influence? Fluence. I want a northern section. I want to make sure the Russians don't expand any further south. So now you've got these two competing factions within the cabinet. One wants a southern zone that they control. One wants another a northern zone. But the point is you have to wait for the war to be over with. But at the very least for right now, we can support the Arabs, get them to stir up trouble with the Ottoman Empire, and maybe that's how we can undo this entire thing. Because for right now, even though it's early on, it's quite clear that the war is going to be horrendous. There's going to be a lot of casualties, and it could go on for a very long time because there doesn't seem to be a way to 
conquer large chunks of territory of the other guy. So this they've got to work this out. And right now, this is just internal discussions in London. Mm. And one of those guys is uh, Tory MP Sir Mark Sykes. Mm-hmm. He was supportive of the Arabs breaking away from the Turks, again, with the view that they would be controlled by the British after the war. Yeah. Privately, he referred to the Arabs as cowardly, <laughs> insolent, yet despicable, vicious, as far as their feeble bodies will admit, Damn. and that Damn. the Bedouin Arabs were rapacious, greedy animals. Right. Uh, Coincidentally, all terms that I use to refer to you in my private correspondence. Vicious, as far as his feeble body will admit. Uh, Insolent. Right? Yet despicable. I am. I am. Now, I looked up a picture of Mr. Sir Mark Sykes. Not exactly a Rambo physique, so the idea that he's calling them vicious as their feeble bodies will admit is pretty funny. So he doesn't obviously think much of the of the Arabs, but guess what? He doesn't think much of the Jews either. He doesn't trust them very much. Uh, he's not a big fan of theirs. However, and, and if you can explain this to me, Cam, I would really appreciate it, but if you can't, that's fine, because I think it's one of those elusive things. As I'm reading through, trying to get ready for the Balfour Declaration, you keep running across these various ministers. And more times than not, it said either they were neutral or they didn't like the Jews. But eventually, they become converts to Zionism. Is there some massive secret organization going around converting these people to the Jewish point of view? I mean, this happens with Sykes, it happens with others, but... He, he hates both sides, so you think he would be perfect to be, you know, involved in this because he's neutral, but he does convert to Zionism at some point, and maybe Aaron Arelson in late 1916 helped convert this man. Well, when, when they say converted to Zionism, I don't think... No, no, just they were... Jews. Right, right, they, right. They, their cause. Well, to me, it's, it's, it's relatively simple. Okay. You're, you're, you're Brit... It's 1914, 15, 16, 17. Uh, you're trying to figure out, uh, after the war, who would you rather have uh, running Palestine? Who is going right. to be most loyal? Who are you going to be able to get along with the best? Who has the most interests in common with the British and British economic interests? Right. The Arabs or the Jews? And they're figuring, well, if we uh, support the cause of Zionism outwardly, openly, right. then the Jews are going to fucking owe us one. And yeah. if they owe us one, Boom. they will do what we tell them right. to do, which is basically protect right. the Suez Canal. That's, right. really what they, that's really what it was in it for the British. But... As you said, uh, Field Marshal Lord Kitchener, the mm -hmm. British Secretary of State for War, right. had other views, and during this time he secretly promised Hussein ibn Ali, the Hashemite <laughs> Sharif of Mecca, right. that he could have a caliphate after oh, the war. Thank you. Basically, uh, control... Uh, a large part of Arabia with uh, in a religious theocratic government. Uh, funny, today, British politicians 
fighting ISIS because ISIS won a caliphate right. 100 years ago. They were offering up so, yeah, caliphates. We'll help you. You can have a caliphate. You can have a caliphate. You can have a caliphate. You just got to support us. Yeah. Yeah. Just support us in World War One against the Ottomans and afterwards you can have a, a, an oppressive uh, uh, religious uh, theocratic right. government. It's yeah. fine. We don't have a problem with that. It's all good. <laughs> now, they also agreed to make him king of the Hejaz, basically the area of what is now, say, Saudi Arabia. Right. That included Medina and Mecca. That's a hell of a carrot. But. Yeah. yeah. But, well, n- not enough of a carrot uh, <laughs> for Hus- Hussein ibn Ali, as it turned out. He thought he didn't want to leave too much money on the table. So he said, listen, I want more. I want British guarantees that after the war, my kingdom will encompass the entire Ottoman Arab Empire. All of it. Right. Persia, basically. He wanted Persia. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the Persian Empire (laughs) and I want to turn that into a caliphate. I control the whole fucking thing. Now, the High Commissioner in Egypt, Sir Henry McMahon, well right. known to fans of Sir Lawrence Arabia, uh, pushed back. Now, on, yeah. on one hand, he wanted to keep the Arabs happy, wanted to keep yeah. them on the, the side of, of urging a revolt against the Ottomans. On the other hand, he already had secret plans to <laughs> occupy some right. of the Ottoman Arab Empire oh. after the war, and it already agreed with the French that <laughs> they could have the rest. So... Oh, my God. Yeah. He told Ali that he couldn't have the Syrian coast west of Damascus, including Lebanon, and he couldn't have Iraq either. Right. But everything else... Pretty much up for grabs. Now, present-day Syria and Jordan were his, along mm-hmm. with the Arabian Peninsula, a.k.a. like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and UAE. But what about Palestine? Was it west of Damascus or right. part of Syria? Now, if you pull up your Google Maps and have a look... <laughs> Right. At Palestine, it's kind of southwest of Damascus. Ah, right. And it hadn't Maybe. been explicitly excluded right. like the Syrian coastline was in Lebanon and Iraq. So the Arabs assumed it was theirs. <sighs> Was McMahon maybe being a politician and just being vague or leaving certain words or descriptions or territories out because that's what you do and you hope the other guy doesn't catch it? But you're right. I mean, this is going to piss off the Arabs because they're going to assume that Palestine is going to be theirs. Kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Stalin during the Yalta negotiations. <laughs> like, right. What are we gonna What are we gonna do about the uh, elections in Poland? Oh, yeah, we'll, listen, we'll, get we'll to work it, it out. Yeah, yeah, don't, yeah, don't sweat the small stuff, baby. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, just, just trust me. Uh, give me, just help me. You know, uh, beat Hitler. 
Right. Uh, and let me just be clear about this. I'm the one beating Hitler. You guys are just standing right. around on the sidelines with your dicks in your hands. <laughs> be nice if you jumped in and helped out a little oh. bit. Uh, then we can talk about Poland. I think McMahon was basically doing the same thing. Listen, we'll, uh, I don't know. we'll figure out. Uh, pa- Palestine, what's that? Never heard of it. Don't worry about it. Oh, sure, it'll be fine. We'll work it out later. Now, he also didn't mention... Zionism or Jews at all when he was making right. his deal with Good call. the Arabs. Now, London already at this stage had definitely intended to keep Palestine set aside as a special case. Now, either McMahon didn't know that or misunderstood his instructions from London or <laughs> forgot to mention it or <laughs> just, uh, as you say, it was... Uh, to mention yes, it. Yeah. It was diplomacy, uh, let's just not bring it up. What? Now, the basic British plan was to break the Arabs away from Turkey but keep them loosely under British control, another part of the Commonwealth. Right. Yeah, so so again, it's not like they're lying, but their promises are vague. They're they're telling, you know, because there's, there's talks within London, there's talks between the British and the French, there's talks with the British... And the Arabs. I mean, it's kind of all over the place, but the British are basically trying to play everybody off against everybody. But at the end of the day, they want to say who gets what territory, and they have to worry about the Russians coming south, and they have to make sure that the Suez Canal is in and being held by people that either directly report to them or that they, they can trust, like you said. So basically, they're fighting their enemy, but at the same time, they're trying to make sure their allies don't get anything that they don't want them to get. So the British, but the British are old hands at this. They know exactly what they're doing. There's a lot of talks going on, but a lot of it's just smoke and mirrors. Reginald Wingate, who is the Governor General of Sudan and a pretty important uh, British official in the Middle East, put it this way in 1915. I conceive it to be not impossible that in the dim future a federation of semi-independent Arab states might exist under European guidance and support, linked together by racial and linguistic grounds, owing spiritual allegiance to a single Arab primate and looking to Great Britain as its patron and protector. Right. So, just part of the British Empire. You're independent, but you'll not be Sure you are. Nudge, 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 (laughs) nudge, wink, wink. So You're independent. (laughs) So now that the British more or less know what they want, in late 1915, it's time to formally bring in the French for talks, because like you were saying earlier, the French have their own designs on some of this territory, and they have very specific ideas about what they want. The British have to find a way to give them as much as they can without giving up something that they want for their own security reasons. So Britain is represented by Sir Mark Sykes, we mentioned before. France was represented by François-Georges Picot, (laughs) the first secretary of their London embassy. Now... Picot said the French wanted the area that he called Syria as a French protectorate, right. if not ideally as a domain of direct French rule. Right. Uh, no French government, he declared, <laughs> who surrender its claims to Syria. Is that my French accent? Oh, no French government uh, would surrender its claims to Syria, which is uh, he defined as roughly present-day Syria... Lebanon, 
Israel slash Palestine, Jordan, northern Iraq, and part of Anatolia. Damn! Britain, there, on the yeah. other hand, wanted to hold on to Palestine, right. present-day Jordan, and the bulk of Mesopotamia as areas for either, again, direct rule by the British or as a British protectorate. Right. The bulk of Mesopotamia would be what, Iraq and Iran, I guess. Iraq, Kuwait, and the eastern parts of Syria and southern, southeastern mm. Turkey. Yeah, yeah. So... Everybody knows what they want, but but they can. But this is the British and the French. They fought for hundreds of years before this. At least now they can sit down at a table and work things out. And mostly, each side can get what it wants. So in the end, they came up with the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was mm -hmm. concluded uh, January 3rd, 1916. Gave both sides more or less what they wanted. France got the promise of direct rule over Greater Lebanon and the northwestern Syrian coastline. Yeah. And Britain got direct rule over the provinces of Basra and Baghdad in Mesopotamia. The area in between was earmarked for a confederation of Arab states, Aww. but was really just going to be divided in <laughs> two, with France being the protector right. over the northern half, including... Aleppo and Damascus and mm -hmm. uh, Mosul, and Britain would be the protector over the southern area, including the Negev Desert, the Transjordan, most of Iraq, and most of the desert west of the Euphrates. Palestine, <laughs> from Acre mm -hmm. down to Gaza, and eastward to the Jordan River, was going to fall under joint Anglo-French... Sure. Rule. That right. sounds like the perfect solution because there's nothing <laughs> that works better than getting the French and the British together to agree right. on things. Britain, Britain was given a, a small area of direct rule in the Haifa Accra coastal area and the right to a railway link sure. down to Transjordan. Uh, Britain's Director of Military Intelligence, General Sir George MacDonough, <laughs> said the Sykes-Picot Agreement was like the hunters who divided up the skin of the bear before they had killed it. <laughs> yeah, but you got to make plans, right? But it just shows that, you know, uh, the empire system is alive and well and these guys have got plans. Because if you think about it, if you can bring down the Ottoman Empire from inside... Then you can attack the Austro-Hungarian Empire directly, maybe on that side. Who knows what that's going to do to Germany? So, I mean, I just, I have to admire these guys thinking in, 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 on a massive scale, something that I, that I find completely impressive. They're like in the middle of a war. They don't know what's going to happen. And they're talking about adding vast territory to their already impressive empires. I mean, these men have just got brass balls. And I just, I just have always found that impressive. That they can think on that on such a grand scale. And 20 years later, when uh, Hitler <laughs> decided to take Poland and Czechoslovakia, they were like, what? <laughs> what the fuck do you think you're doing? The it's window of opportunity yeah, <laughs> for taking over countries ended 20 right. years ago. Didn't you get Did you see the, the close memo? signed? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, pretty sure we were quite clear about that. That we, when we finish taking over yeah. countries, done. That's it. Yeah, done. Zip, you not, zip that bitch up. Are you not, you're not on the group email? Because I can send it again. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we BCC'd you on that email. Colonialism is finished. Over. Yes. Thank you very much. Right. No more. <laughs> So <laughs> they were the, they were dividing up the skin of the bear before they killed it, but the kill was only a year off. Now, right. David Lloyd George became prime minister in 1916, mm-hmm. and in his view, a Zionist Israel as a British protectorate was going to be the best way of defending the yeah. Suez Canal from the east. Now, a couple of years before that, in 1914, Sir Herbert Samuel, a Jew... Right. British Jew, who was the postmaster general in Asquith's cabinet, had suggested a Zionist Israel. And Lloyd George had supported it then because mm-hmm. he wanted to keep the French out of Palestine and obviously <laughs> French. In, due in part to the Dreyfus affair. Right. The French and the, the Zionists and the Jews didn't really have very good uh, uh, rapportment. Yeah. They didn't really get along very well. Now, Samuel himself wanted Israel to be a state in which, in his words, 90 or 100,000 Jewish inhabitants mm-hmm. would rule over four to 500,000 Mohammedans of Arab race. Sure. Now, that sounds... Yeah. Yeah, that sounds entirely reasonable to (laughs) me, Ray. Uh, The majority rules. Yeah. No, the minority rules. No. Oh, I did my numbers backwards. I'm sorry. Sorry. But... Yeah. A lot of The minority of white people ruling over a bunch of darkies, Ray. That's the way that we've always done it. That sounds natural. That sounds right. I can't believe I just said that. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. I think I've got a... Sorry. I I think I've got a soundboard for that. (laughs) Uh, I would like to apologize to my Native American grandfather. I'm sorry. Sorry, Peppa. Here he is. That's the way I like it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, no, that's the one. <laughs> no. That's not the one I was looking for. <laughs> Hold on. That's a power play, baby. Well, it was, but again, not the clip I was looking for. Uh, uh, I'll just go with this one. I'm hard. I'm so hard. <laughs> It's moments like this that make the editing a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, but Lord Kitchener, or Horatio, as I like to call him. Right, big H. Uh, torpedo- torpedoed Samuel's idea. He yeah. personally didn't think Palestine had much strategic value. But right. by 1916, he was dead. <laughs> drowned Raw. in the North Sea after a German torpedo attack. He yeah. had managed... You know, the first four or five torpedoes they shot at his ship, he deflected with his moustache. <laughs> Not many people know that. That's why he had the long moustache. It was pew. deflecting torpedoes. Right. But the, the, the last one got, got through. through. I think he was yeah. waxing his moustache at the time. Oh. Torpedo attacks. Yes. And Lloyd George replaced Asquith as Prime Minister and Arthur Balfour, yes, the uh, local member of uh, Chaim Weizmann, became mm-hmm. Foreign Secretary. 
Right. Winston Churchill, a man uh, I, I've heard his name somewhere before, right. became the first Lord of the Admiralty. And in eighteen oh, in sorry, in nineteen oh eight, he had gone on record by saying, <coughs> "The establishment, mother strong, free, Jewish state, astride the bridge between Europe and Africa, flanking the land roads to the east." would not only be an immense advantage to the British Empire, but a notable step towards a harmonious disposition of the world among its peoples. Mm. Now, of course, this is the same uh, Churchill who would later blame communism in Russia on the Jews. Uh, right. But Sounds we'll talk right. about that more later. So, amazingly, or maybe not, the British really didn't think the Arabs would care if they gave Palestine to the Jews. Yeah, just a slice. Just just a slice, slice. just a tip. <laughs> We're just giving him the tip. It's not you 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 can't get pregnant. Right. If we just stick the tip in. <laughs> that's that's science. Yeah. But see, just real quick, uh, the as you can imagine, the Americans saw things quite differently than the British and the French. Colonel Edward Mandel House, who was the president's aide, wrote, It's it is all bad. And I told Balfour so. They are making the Middle East a breeding place for future war. So as soon as the Americans hear anything about any kind of division, you know, car- the two uh, two uh, empires carving up the Middle East and to give to themselves, the Americans just know it's going to be a bad idea. But that's uh, that's for the future. But the Americans don't have a good feeling about it thus far when they first hear about it. Yeah, because there was nothing in it for the Americans. That's I true. Mean, at this, at we'll this see what stage, they weren't... They weren't getting anything out of it, so why yeah. should they support it? I bet you Mandel, Edward Mandel House uh, won big in the internal White House uh, pool, betting pool on that. When yeah. He said, oh, yeah, this is going to be a future war here. They're like, no, you're crazy. Yeah. You're crazy. Oh. Uh, you were making the point a second ago that a lot of people in the British government were sympathetic or were Zionists or whatever. There's one more person I want to add to that, and that's South African General Jan Smoots, who brought who was brought basically brought up, I think, by his mother on the Old Testament, and he had a famous line that he liked to say over and over again: "Israel will return to its land." So he was on board as well, and like you said, they had or they didn't want to see there being any problem with this because it's such a small part of what the Arabs were going to be getting after the war. What, what's the yeah. complaint? Yeah, come on, come I'm on. Sure, I'm sure if the Arabs had gone to Great Britain and said, well, just like give the Jews whales. Just, <laughs> it's okay, just give them whales. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's the principle of the just, thing, not the amount of land. Just kick all of the Welsh off right. their land. Can't understand them anyway. The Jews take whales. Yeah, right. it's right. <laughs> What have they ever done? What's the greatest Welsh contribution to, like, Anthony Hopkins? He's not even born yet. I mean, so Richard Burton, again, I mean, who knows who he is? Um, no one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century. Uh, in 1917, though, when the Allies were bogged down on the Western Front, yeah. uh, the Russian Revolution has just happened. They're worried that the Russians are going to agree oh. to a peace deal with yes. the Germans. The British are trying to get the Americans more involved in the war. Britain played its masterstroke and issued the Balfour Declaration. Yeah. Now, it was partly conceived to counter French 
claims to Palestine. Right. And they, which I'll talk about in a second, but also they were hoping that by endorsing Zionism, they would legitimise their own presence in Palestine as the protector ah, right. of Jewish self-determination. No, listen, what it's your guys? land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're giving yeah. it to you. Yeah. But we are going to stay here <laughs> With just to make sure right. you self-determine properly. <laughs> like you haven't, you haven't self-determined for a right. long time. You may do it wrong. It takes a you yeah. might self-determine wrong. Yeah, right. we want to make sure that you self-determine appropriately. You're welcome. Uh, how will we know if we self-determine? Well, we will, <laughs> we will tell you if the decisions oh, you make are the you're wrong right. decisions. Yeah. That doesn't sound like self-determination. Well, it is. Well, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Trust me. Yeah, no. This is the way it always works, self-determination. You, you need to have someone tell you what the right form of self-determination is. Uh, we'll just keep an army here just to make yeah, sure you self-determine yeah, yeah. correctly. Don't worry about it. It's going to be yeah. fine. It'll be good. Don't worry. It's all good. Now, apparently the British suspected that the that a lot of American Jews, many of them German and Austro-Hungarian descent, Ooh, right, favoured the Central Powers and opposed Russia because of its anti-Semitism. Yes, and uh, British ambassador at the time to Constantinople, Sir Gerard Lowther, referred to the ruling party there, the CUP, as the Jew Committee of Union and Progress. <laughs> the Jews, he wrote, are adept at manipulating occult forces oh. to control the Ottoman Empire. Some, some uh, of the British blame the war itself on, quote, a syndicate of Jews, financiers, and low-born intriguers. Sure. Uh, then we have the old Churchill quote about Russia and the communism where he said, the movement among the... This, mo <coughs> this movement among the Jews is not new. From the days of Spartacus Weishaupt to those of Karl Marx and down to Trotsky, Melikun... Rosa Luxemburg and Emma Goldman. This worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization <sighs> and for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development, which was a great show in its first <laughs> two or three seasons, but recently has gone off the boil, we must all admit, of envious malevolence and possible equality has been steadily growing. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. And now at last, this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and have become practically the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. Wow. But I'm not an anti-Semite. Some of my breast... <laughs> Servants are Jews. <laughs> I haven't beat one with a whip in weeks, so there you go. I don't so know. don't call me a cracker. Weishaupt. Weishaupt, I mentioned there, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with Weishaupt. Weishaupt was the founder of the Order of the Illuminati. Oh. So uh, just keep that in mind. 
Nice. Hmm. But at this stage, yeah. uh, the Britain and France came to believe that getting American Jews to support their cause in World War One would help them bring the United States into the war. Right. And that would help keep Russia involved because right. they were pretty sure that the uh, communists and the Americans were just going to get along famously. Um, so that was also part of the justification or the thinking behind the Balfour Declaration and the timing of it in the uh, hairiest days of World War One. Right. Did we give the Balfour quote of October 31st, 1917? Did we read that on a previous show? I honestly can't remember. Yeah, we may have touched on it, but we can okay. do it again. Well, I, I, it pretty much just sums up, it just matches perfectly what you just said. Balfour writes uh, on October 31st, 1917, the vast majority of Jews in Russia and America, as indeed all over the world, now appear to be favorable to Zionism. If we could make a declaration favorable to such an idea, we should be able to carry on extremely useful propaganda, both in Russia and America. At least that's what uh, Stan and Barry have told me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a uh, ploy. It's a ploy. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And this is Lord Balfour of yeah. the Balfour Declaration Just who called it, out it there. Propaganda, propaganda. Right. To be used in Russia and America. Lord Robert Crewe, who was the acting foreign secretary, uh, sent a cable to British ambassadors in France and Russia in March of 1916. So mm -hmm. before, a year before, a year and a half before the Balfour Declaration. Well, he said, it is clear that the Zionist idea has in it the most far-reaching political possibilities. We might ah. hope to use it in such a way as to bring over to our side the Jewish forces in America, the East and elsewhere, which are now largely, if not preponderantly, hostile to us. Wow. So propaganda. It's a tactic. It was the Balfour. It was a tactic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nothing to, more. War to, measure. To get the Americans involved in the war and get the justification to take control of Palestine after the war so they could protect the Suez Canal. Right. And to stop the French from taking credit <laughs> oh, for yeah. supporting the Zionists first, because three months before the Balfour Declaration, <laughs> in June of 1917, the Director General of the French Foreign Ministry, Jules Cambon, right. issued this declaration. <laughs> it, would be the, it would be a deed of justice and of reparation to assist by the protection of the Allied powers in the renaissance of the Jewish nationality in that land from which the people of Israel were exiled so many centuries ago. The French government, which entered this present war to defend the people wrongfully attacked and which continues to struggle to assure the victory of right over might, cannot but feel sympathy for your cause, the triumph of which is bound up with that of the Allies. Oh. The British were like, oh, no, no fucking way are you getting in <laughs> there, son. We, right. we no, had this Jim. idea. Right. We had this yeah. idea a year ago. Like, okay, we haven't done anything about it, but we were. Th <laughs> We've been talking. We thought of it first. How I'll dare show you, you the emails. I'll show you the emails. Yeah. yeah. No, Pretty no, no, sure no. we forgot to CC you in on that one. <clears throat> <laughs> now, yeah. the British were also worried that the Germans would make a similar oh, offer. That's right. To I the Zionists. Yes. And, and would join forces with them. 
Mm. So there are all of these political reasons for the Balfour Declaration. It was not, as it is usually portrayed, an act of benevolence on behalf of the British to the Jews. Uh, But not again, not all of the British administration were in favour of it. Lord Curzon, the Foreign Secretary, who later on gave his name to the Soviet-Polish boundary, the Curzon Line, said that Palestine was mostly, quote, barren and desolate, a less propitious seat for the future Jewish race could not be imagined. (laughs) And he called Zionism sentimental idealism, which would never be realised. Wow. All right, well, let's leave talking about Lord Rothschild and his role Okay. In the Balfour Declaration uh, for next time, because that's a fucking rabbit hole. Exactly. Um, okay, well, that's it, folks. Hope you uh, learned something there. And um, don't forget, as I always say... If you're 13 and you're willing, <laughs> I'll do it. Jesus Christ. Out of context... curtain has descended across the continent. It's hot. Oh. Oh. It's hot. You can end it on hot. That's fine. Friggin' immigrants. No. You ended on that.